Thank you, worship team, for reminding us of uh, why we gather. Uh, we have not gathered for uh, any one person to see uh, anyone perform, but we, we want to grow and know and meet a Christ and worship him. And we welcome again uh, all of you who are visiting with us. Uh, glad to have you with us today, uh, whether you're returning visitors or first-time visitors uh, or, well, all of our regular attenders and members. Glad to have you wor worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ with us this morning. Uh, what a blessing it is because this morning we actually uh, have a, a guest speaker, uh, a guest speaker who's familiar to a good number of you. Uh, he has family in this church and so uh, relatives that and he's uh, uh, just he, in discussing with him. I just remember, oh, I, I met him a long time ago. I just realized when he was a little high schooler, a uh, young high schooler. Uh, when I was a young pastor here, I uh, met him uh, at uh, Lowell High School's one of their fellowship group uh, gatherings. And uh, but uh, I really come to know him more recently in recent years because the Lord has laid upon his heart uh, to a call to ministry. He's uh, he after uh, after leaving San Francisco, he went off to seminary out there in the, at the Master Seminary. And graduated in 2014, as I understand it, around there. And uh, for the last five years, he's been serving a, in a church in Torrance, California, a Lighthouse Community Church. Uh, many of you remember, you know, Pastor Kim Kier, those of you, others who have come through that church in the past, uh, uh, that church out there. So really a wonderful church, a gospel preaching church. And we've uh, had the great privilege to have a relationship with them over the years. And so, uh, but uh, really, uh, uh, Pastor Wayne, is, uh, he's a San Francisco native. Uh, he tells me that he has not forsaken his uh, San Francisco roots. He still roots for all our local teams, so uh, that's good to see that he's faithful. Uh, good to see he's faithful. Uh, but no, uh, more seriously, uh, it is, uh, it's always a joy just to see young men grow in the ministries uh, uh, and to be called ministry, grow in the ministry, be trained, and then to serve in Christ's church, or wherever that may be. Um, and he is here with his wife, Melanie, is with us as well. Uh, and uh, there are three kids. They're uh, just uh, visiting for a family gathering. So it was just by the providence of God that we have an opportunity to uh, invite uh, Pastor Wayne to come preach God's word this morning. And, uh, and one of the joys of why I, I like to have uh, guest preachers, uh, uh, I know many of you come here to listen to me, uh, but... <laughs> Yes, I know. But we do not preach Henry Tam here, okay? Uh, we preach Christ here. And uh, the reason why we bring in guest speakers is that as long as they open up the Word of God, I, we believe that they will preach Christ to us. And so that we know that whoever's standing up here, as long as the Word is opened up, uh, we will hear Christ. I just want you to, us to get used to listening to the preaching of Christ through the Word of God. And whether whoever is the man that happens to be here, whether it's some... 55 years ago uh, that we think about the start and beginning of the church till, till these days. And so uh, well, I'd like to ask you to warmly welcome to the pulpit this morning, Pastor Wayne Hu, who can share God's word with us. All right, well, it is a privilege for me to be here, and it's always great to be back in our hometown here in the sunset. Uh, we got to celebrate my wife uh, Mel's grandmother's 90th birthday yesterday, and so that was a special time. Uh, but as Pastor Henry mentioned, uh, our our family has been living in exile in Dodgerland for the last 18 years. All three of our kids were born in L.A., and so it's nice to be able to fellowship here with like-minded true believers. <laughs> we are so thankful for the ministry here at SF Bible. Many of our close friends, as Pastor Henry mentioned, childhood friends, even our family members are, are here. And so it's been a blessing seeing God's faithfulness and goodness um, displayed in this church family. And just to, just to hear about what God is doing in and through many of your lives. But if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to our passage for today. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. John 1, 19 to 34. 
It reads this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that allows us to come together before your word, that we might gain insight into your word and insight into our own hearts. We pray for the help of your spirit, that we may see and hear with our spiritual eyes and ears, and that we may exalt Christ in our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this morning, I want to start off with a question, and that is, if someone were to ask you, who are you, how would you respond? What would you say and how would you say it? Would you try to put your best foot forward and impress, or would you play it low-key and not say much? For me, because my last name is Hu, H-U, I've grown up with my whole life with people saying my name, Wayne Hu, and then asking, Who Wayne Hu, and then you get how that goes. And when my wife, Mel, changed her last name, I told her, get ready. People will suddenly become comedians when they say your name. But during my time at USC, I experienced probably one of the most awkward conversations of my life having to do with this question, who are you? I was getting my master's degree in music education, and because it was a new program, the school wanted to evaluate how it was doing. And so a classmate and I were invited to represent our new program to the, to the department's board of counselors. So I remember thinking, all right, it's no big deal. We'll just talk for a couple minutes to some donors to get our funding, and then that'll be it. Well, we get there, and I remember walking into the meeting room and immediately realizing, oh man, I am totally not ready for this. Because in that room were 20, 12 to 13 of the most famous, most accomplished musicians in the entire world. Sitting there was Randy Newman, singer-songwriter for movies like Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., Cars. There was Herbie Hancock, jazz pianist and composer. You might recognize some of his songs like Watermelon Man or Cantaloupe Island or Rocket. There was a director from the L.A. Philharmonic, another lady who was one of the biggest music producers in Hollywood. And so here I am in a private meeting with numerous Academy Award winners, Golden Globe winners, Grammy and Emmy winners. After we shared our feedback of the program, we were invited to hang out with everyone. And it was during this time that a taller man in a white suit came up to talk to me. 
We talked about the program, a little bit about me. But the entire time, I was completely stressed, not because I knew who he was, but because I had absolutely no idea who he was. And so finally, after I've exhausted everything about myself that I could think of sharing, and in an effort to be considerate and to try to get to know him, I asked the only question that I could think of asking, aside from literally, who are you? And that was, so what do you do? <laughs> I remember as those words left my mouth, being so embarrassed, because I knew I should have known who he was. And he knew that I knew that I should have known who he was. It was like one of those Southwest want to get away commercials. And yet his response to my ignorant and borderline disrespectful question was so humble and so gracious. I still remember he just said, oh, you know, I just try to write some songs here and there. Sometimes people like them, sometimes they don't. Well, after my 10-minute conversation with him, I still didn't know who he was. So on my way out, I asked one of the organizers, excuse me, do you know who that gentleman in the white suit is? And her face said it all. Her eyes widened, her jaw dropped, it was a mixture of shock and anger that I didn't know who he was. And she responded, that's Glenn Ballard, Grammy award-winning songwriter. He wrote Thriller and Bad for Michael Jackson, songs for Dave Matthews, Aerosmith, Aretha Franklin, Quincy Jones, Van Halen, and on and on. Now, for those of you who don't know who Glenn Ballard is, thanks, that makes me feel better. <laughs> but it's like being a basketball or baseball fan and not knowing who the all-star players are. As a graduate music student at USC, that was definitely not one of my proudest moments. Well, today in our time together, we're going to explore another response to this fundamental and basic question, who are you? And this response is not just a response by any ordinary person or even someone worldwide famous like a Grammy award-winning songwriter, but by a man who was described by Christ himself as the greatest among those born of women. That's quite a title. This man was chosen to break the 400 years of divine silence that existed since the prophet Malachi. He was the spirit-anointed bridge from the Old Testament to the New. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first New Testament preacher. He was the last in the long line of prophets such as Moses and Isaiah who predicted the coming of Christ. And yet he was the only one who could actually see Christ in the flesh and would even baptize him. We are talking about the herald who personally introduced our Savior to the world, and that is John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ. Now, John the Baptist was definitely one of the most distinctive and important characters in the New Testament. He was different. He was unique. He was necessary to fulfill prophecy about God's plan of salvation in the world. And yet, sometimes when we think about John the Baptist, for many of us, perhaps who grew up in the church, we tend to think of him as just a really weird guy. Right, as a kid, you might have biblical heroes and people that you want to be like, maybe Moses, David, Paul, but probably not John the Baptist. The scriptures describe him as living in the desert before his calling from God, wearing wild-looking clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He had a strange diet, not the Atkins or Whole30 or keto diets, right? He had the locust and honey diet. And I think it's interesting that, you know, every time we teach this to our kids, right, we, we make John seem like a crazy man, like, oh, he ate locusts and honey, right? But come on. Okay, and I'm only going to say this because we're in this context. John the Baptist got nothing on Chinese people, okay? <laughs> Chicken feet, right? Stomach lining, a thousand-year-old egg. Come on. 
You want to talk about crazy? We're crazy. All right. Anyway, John the Baptist was not very cool according to the world. He was not very hip. He was not very popular with the religious authorities. He was not orthodox or seeker-sensitive in his preaching. In fact, it was pretty clear whether preaching to the general public or to kings and rulers of empires that he was scared of no one. One of his most famous lines was calling out the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, <clears throat> who warned you from the flea, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <clears throat> but out of all the things that make John the Baptist unique, what stands out to us in scripture is that he was a man who had a singular focus in life. It was crystal clear what he lived for and what he died for. There are few people in all of scripture that can be described as being <clears throat> so steadfast and unwavering in their commitment to God and that's what makes John's life and testimony so powerful. Right, John understood the purpose of his life, and he targeted all of his efforts towards fulfilling that mission without compromise. He wasn't unique because he was trying to be unique. He was simply obedient to God's calling in his life. And that is my hope for all of us today. For you and me to learn from this man of God, not in appearance or wardrobe selection or food choices, but for us to emulate John the Baptist in the attitude of his heart and the purpose of his life. John says it himself when he says, referring to Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. That should be our goal in all settings of life, to exalt and further Christ while making sure that we ourselves do not get in the way. The outline for today's message is pretty straightforward. It's just three points, all relating to how we should understand our purpose as followers of Christ from the life of John the Baptist. The first is that we must understand who we are not. The second is we must understand who we are. And the third is we must understand who Christ is. Let's go ahead and start with our first point, understanding who we are not. Going back to our text, let's read again from verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to, Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Setting up the background of our text, John the Baptist has been called out from the desert by God to begin his ministry. He's preaching a hard message of repentance and judgment, and people were coming out from all over the place to hear him preach. But not only was John attracting huge crowds because of his preaching, but he was also baptizing people, right? Lots and lots of people. That's the title, John the Baptist, in case you didn't get that connection. It's not that there was a John the Presbyterian and John the Methodist and John the non-denominational, okay? But what was different, and not just different, but shocking about John's baptisms was not the sheer number of people he was baptizing, but who he was baptizing, right? For Jews, baptism was not a new thing. It was a regular rite of passage for Gentiles, non-Jews who wanted to convert to Judaism, and so what was startling and even offensive was that John was baptizing Jews, right? God's chosen people and putting them in the same class, the same category as the Gentiles, those who were considered unclean and defiled. And so the Pharisees, the guardians of the Jewish faith, send a committee to find out what is going on, right? Who is this guy? Where is he from? And why is he doing what he's doing? They approach him and ask the basic and fundamental question, who are you? Now we just read John's answer together. But if you think about this question, John could have responded in so many other ways. He could have said, you want to know who I am? I am the man chosen to break the 400 years of divine silence. Or how about this? I am the closer, right? The last Old Testament prophet 
That's probably something I would have said if I was John. Or knowing that there were speculations going around, rumors about him possibly being the long-awaited Messiah, John could have easily taken this opportunity to link himself to Christ and in so doing promote his own name and reputation, right? If there were advertising firms around, they'd probably be advising John to use this moment to increase his following, right? Build his platform, get some good PR, keep this thing going. John could have said, I'm not the Christ, but I am related to him. Right? Our moms are basically cousins. We knew each other since the womb. The angel Gabriel appeared to his mom. The same angel appeared to my dad. And yet John the Baptist was constantly minimizing and deflecting any attention coming his way. And he takes this opportunity to squash any, possibly, any possible inkling that he was the Messiah. He says without qualification, without hesitation, I am not the Christ. I am not the anointed one which is what the title Christ means. I am not the one that you have been waiting for. In fact, in verse 20, we have this lengthy and complicated expression, he confessed and he did not deny, and he confessed, which is kind of a redundant way to emphasize how adamant John was in denying that he was the Christ. Uh, What's insightful to point out is as the Pharisees continue to ask him more questions, are you Elijah, are you the prophet? John's answers get progressively shorter and shorter. Right, first he says, I am not the Christ, then I am not, then finally, no. It's like when you have young kids and they're asking you if they can, you know, buy some toy at Target or eat candy before breakfast. And, you know, first you try to answer the questions calmly and, and patiently. You try to shepherd their hearts, help them see their idols. But when they keep persisting, the answers tend to get shorter and shorter. This is the same with John's responses. As the Pharisees keep asking about who he is, he's more and more bothered, more and more annoyed. He doesn't want to talk about himself or spend time getting into debates. Instead, his goal in life is to talk about someone else, to point to someone else, because he understands that he is not the focus. And this brings us to our first sub-point for today, which is we are not the focus. I think we would benefit greatly to pause and reflect on this attitude of John and how we can learn from him. For most of us, I doubt that you know, we are outright, in your face, arrogant or self-seeking in our attitudes. But I'm pretty sure that all of us struggle with spending too much time thinking about ourselves. Our natural bent and inclination is to be self-centered, right? to spend time and energy thinking about our needs and our wants. Even perhaps thinking that others and this world should somewhat revolve around us and our interests and desires. For some of us, it could be things like being consumed with our work, right? And what we have to do to make it to the next level. Or things that we need to do to purchase, to upgrade our home. Or how we could position ourselves so that we could be more successful in this world or whatever context we are in. For others of us, it could be more subtle, Right? Spending our thoughts and efforts on, on creating a certain image or a certain reputation for ourselves, wanting to be liked and accepted by others. We can easily spend a good amount of time thinking about how we want to be known and who we want to become. And so John's response to the Pharisees helps us greatly by reminding us that we should not be the focus of so much time and energy and effort. We are not the Christ. Right? I think it's a sobering thought to realize that what gets in the way of God's kingdom and purposes moving forward is not just this fallen world or forces in the government that conflict with the Christian faith. What gets in the way of God's kingdom moving forward is our own little kingdoms, 
It's us being preoccupied with ourselves. Right? And at the heart level, it is us worshiping ourselves and our own lives. And we don't even realize that we have neglected our purpose in life, which is to further Christ. So it is no small matter when we talk about this issue of self-centeredness. Right? Every day we are growing and fueling our worship in something or someone. And whatever you spend your time and energy meditating on, studying, dreaming about, reflecting on, that is what is going to dominate and direct your life. And yet John reminds us again, we are not the Christ. And because we cannot exalt ourselves and Christ at the same time, we must fight our self-centeredness by fueling our faith every day. Not only are we to understand that we are not the focus, but we also need to understand that we are not the solution. I believe for John the Baptist, one of the reasons why he could live with so much freedom and contentment is because he believed he was not the solution. He wasn't looking to himself to right all the wrongs of the world and to be in control of his life. Instead, he yielded and surrendered his life and his circumstances to his Savior. Some of you might worry a lot about your future, whether it's the future of your family or the future of your career or even your health. If you think that everything is solely dependent upon you, you will be burdened constantly with trying to control all the possible outcomes. Right? Instead of going to God, you will look to yourself and your intellect and resources and willpower to solve all the problems that come your way. And you'll be frustrated when things don't work out the way you expect. But if you understand that you are not the Christ, you can then live life the way you were supposed to live, which is to let you be you and to let God be God. For those of you who are serving in some type of ministry here at SF Bible, whether it is children's or youth, perhaps teaching, worship, some kind of hospitality or care and concern, I believe understanding that we are not the Christ gives us the proper attitude and the proper expectations as we plan and as we pray, as we organize events. We can provide opportunities for people to grow. We can work hard at demonstrating Christ's love to others, but only God can save and only God can sanctify parents with our kids, right? One of the most humbling truths is to recognize that the one thing that our kids need the most is the one thing that we cannot provide for them, which is salvation for their souls, right? As a dad and even as a pastor, there is nothing I can do to grant my three kids new regenerated hearts. There is nothing I can do to cause them to have true conviction over their sin, right? It doesn't mean that I neglect my role as a faithful husband and father, but salvation is the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit. And as difficult as it might be for us to accept this truth, it also frees us from this responsibility when we recognize as parents, we are not the Christ. We are not to be the center of attention, and we are not called to place burdens on our shoulders that are only God's to carry. Well, if we are not these things, then what are we to be? This brings us to our second point, understanding who we are. Let's read again from verses 22 to 23. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. At this point, the, investi the, invest the investigation committee from the Pharisees are desperate. Even after all their questions, John the Baptist has given them nothing, and they still don't know anything about him. And so they make it clear to him, listen, you need to tell us something about yourself. 
because we have people we need to report to, and we're going to get in trouble if we go back with nothing. And so John finally talks about himself just a little bit, and it reveals everything about who he believes he is. He says, I am the voice. In a world where everyone wants to be seen and known, John says he is a voice. He doesn't care about the credit, about the recognition. He is just a voice, an instrument for his master. And specifically, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, saying that he, he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In the context of Isaiah, the wilderness represents how the hearts of God's people are desolate and barren. And making straight the way represents the idea of preparing a roadway by clearing away the obstacles. So put together, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> put together, John is stating that his goal is to be a worker paving the way, a laborer clearing the path, a servant preparing the scene so that the hearts of people would be ready for the main attraction. His message and his baptism had one simple purpose, which was to prepare this world for Christ. In our world, one of the messages that we're constantly bombarded with is that we need to build a name for ourselves, right? We need to leave a mark. Make it into the hall of fame of whatever field we're a part of. Leave a legacy. And so John's goal of making straight the way for someone else is such a contrary and helpful example to us. Right? John sees himself as a bridge, as a link, as a connector from God to man and man to God. And John's goal was not for himself to be seen and remembered, but for people to see and remember Jesus. Right, there's a song by Casting Crowns that recently, more recently came out titled Only Jesus. When I heard the lyrics, it caught my attention because of how countercultural it was. I'll just read you the, the chorus. It says, And I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. Jesus, right? That really sums up John's goal in his life, and that should be our goal as well, right? As followers of Christ, we're not here on this earth to leave a legacy for ourselves. We're not here to make our name great, but simply be a voice to point others to Christ, right? This is our first sub-point, which is we are messengers of God. We are heralds of the gospel, right? One of my favorite parts about this narrative is the very next passage in verses 35 to 37. John's uh, standing there with two of his disciples, and as they see Jesus walking by, John tells his disciples, what are you guys still doing, still standing here next to me? Go, follow him. Right? John wanted his disciples to leave him, right? to move on from him. He's not concerned with building up a following for himself, but his goal is to see how many people he can persuade and influence so that they will follow Christ, that he might decrease and Christ may increase. For John, he is so consumed with Christ that he interjects Christ wherever he can and whenever he can. If you look at verses 25 to 26 with me again, it's actually a pretty amusing interaction. Right, the Pharisees ask John, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They were looking for him to justify himself, for him to explain why he was doing what he was doing. Right, they were ready for a debate. And John answers, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Right? It's like those interviews on TV when the interviewer asks a question, but the person responding just starts talking about something completely different, having nothing to do with the question. <laughs> this is what John did to the Pharisees. Right? He basically says, I baptize with water, which states the obvious, since what else are you going to baptize with? 
And then he drops the baptism topic so that he can talk about Christ. He says, among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Right? I think there's so much that we can learn from John here in this section, meaning that we should, feel and lo- we should feel our love and worship of Christ so that it can't help but overflow into our words and our conversations with others. Right? A, good, a good question to ask ourselves is, how can we, like John, be intentional in our conversations so that Christ is present? Right? How can we move our conversations upwards so that God and his truths and his promises guide our thoughts? Now, I don't know if the John the Baptist tactic is always the most effective of just interjecting Christ abruptly into a conversation. Uh, someone asks you, how's it going? And you say, I'm good, but you know who's really good? Jesus, the son of God. Yes, right? If you respond that way, people will probably be confused. But with our spouses, with our kids, right, with our coworkers, with our friends, is Christ present in our conversations or do we shy away from including him? Do we share about what he's doing in our lives, what he's teaching us, what we are learning from his word, how we need to grow in our love for him? According to a reliable study that I found on Google, uh, the average man speaks 7,000 words a day. The average woman speaks 20,000 words a day. Now, I'm not trying to make any kind of statement with that. I'm just reporting facts from a study. But in the average lifetime, you will speak over 800... 860 million words. That's the same as reading through the Bible over 1,100 times. How many of those words are going to be about yourself and the things of this world? And how many of those words will be about Christ? How can you be a voice, a messenger for Christ today? Continuing on, John's responses to the Pharisees instruct us not just about who we are to be, but also how we are to be in our posture, our attitude. And this leads us to our second sub-point, which is we are not worthy. We are messengers, and we are not worthy. One of the most revealing statements John makes about himself in all of the Gospels is in verse 27, when John states that he is not worthy to untie even the strap of Jesus' sandal. Now, you don't even have to know all the biblical background to get the gist of what John is trying to say here. If you have a job that interacts on a regular basis with human feet, or if you're just a parent of young kids, you will understand John's point. There are days when you take off their shoes after a long day, and it just reeks, and you got to take off their socks, and it's like sticky and nasty, and you're wondering what's growing in there, okay? But to get the full impact of John's statement, you need to understand that back in the biblical times, disciples performed many services for their teachers, Teachers were not paid, but in partial compensation, disciples would serve the rabbis in different ways. But they had to draw the line somewhere. And so certain menial tasks, like loosing the sandal strap, was not allowed. There was a rabbinic saying that every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of the sandal strap. And so John selects the very task that the rabbinic saying stresses as too menial for any disciple and declares himself unworthy to perform it. Remember, this is the man who Christ described as the greatest among those born of women. And yet John is saying to stoop down and untie the straps and the latchets of Christ's sandals to get down in the dust and do that is too high an honor for him. 
to perform the most menial of tasks of the most menial of slaves was above him. Right, this was the lowest of the low, and John looks at it and says, for me to even touch the sandals of Christ and unloosen them would be too great a privilege. I am not worthy. And the questions we must ask is, why and how? Right, why does John have this attitude when it comes to Christ, and how can we emulate this attitude? Looking at the surrounding text, I believe for John the answer is twofold. First, John recognizes that he is a creature and Christ is his creator. He says again and again that Christ was before him, meaning that he recognized the fact that Christ is eternal God. As creation, right, you and I and John and every other human being that walked this earth, we are categorically inferior to God in all possible ways. Right? We are finite. We are dependent. We are flawed. While he is eternal he is self-sustaining. He is perfect. The creature-creator distinction should be overwhelming enough, overwhelmingly enough to cause us to feel immensely unworthy. And yet there is a second reason that compounds John's sense of unworthiness. And that is, he is a sinner in the midst of a holy God. You and I are sinners in the midst of a holy God. And the thought of standing in the presence of the holiest and most powerful being in the universe should absolutely crush us and make us cry out like the prophet Isaiah, woe is me, a wretched sinner. Right? We are creatures and we are sinners. And these two humbling and, and devastating truths should cause us to marvel at the grace and mercy that we receive every second of our lives from our holy creator. In contrast to John, how different are we sometimes in our approach in our service of Christ? Right? When we have this attitude that perhaps is too casual or, or self-seeking, we might perhaps think that certain ministries are worth our time and energy, but other ministries, not so much. Or when we are asked to volunteer or serve in certain ways, we could perhaps in our hearts, if we're not careful, think that we are above serving in those ways, and perhaps it should be others that should be serving in those ways. Or when we do serve, instead of seeing it as a privilege and as a grace, we think of ourselves as being so loving and so generous with our time and energy, and it becomes more about us than about Christ. The attitude of John the Baptist is one that we should seek to emulate. He looked at the lowest, and instead of saying it was too low, he said it was too high. And whatever it was that Christ asked him to do, he was willing to do it, viewing it as a privilege and honor. We've talked about understanding who we are not and understanding who we are. And now John the Baptist instructs us on our last point for today, which is understanding who Jesus is. Let's read from verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Right, the day after John responds to the committee sent by the Pharisees, John sees Jesus coming towards him from a distance. Right, imagine that for a moment, seeing Jesus walking towards you. And John declares to the world one of the most well-known descriptions of Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In our previous point, we see John introducing himself, and in this point, we see John introducing Jesus. 
And I just want to point out real quick that I hope you can see how striking the difference is. Remember, John doesn't want to talk about himself. He minimizes and deflects any attention coming his way. He's just a voice. But when he talks about Jesus, he gives him an introduction that demands everyone's attention. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Ask yourself, how do you talk about yourself and how do you talk about Christ? How do you talk about who you are and what you can do? And how do you talk about Christ and what he can do? Would there be a difference, right? What would be the difference between your introduction of yourself and your introduction of Christ? Well, here we have John declaring to the world, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the first time that Jesus appears on the scene. We've been hearing about Jesus, talking about Jesus, pointing to Jesus, learning about Jesus. But now here is the first time Jesus appears in person. And the very first thing that is said about him is that he is the Lamb of God. Now, for you and I, thinking of Jesus as the Lamb of God is something that is more familiar to us. It's not something that is surprising or concerning. But for those in John's audience, for the Jews who have been waiting for hundreds of years now for the coming of Christ, this phrase would have been a shocking statement. It would have been a disorienting statement. Right, for John's audience, they expected John to say something like, Behold your king, or behold your ruler, or behold the majestic one. And yet the very first thing that John says about their Messiah is, Behold the Lamb of God. Right, for some of you, when you think of a lamb... You think of cute, soft, fluffy animals like Lammy from Doc McStuffins. It's a kid's show. I have two girls. Okay? But in real life, lambs are weak, helpless, dependent. And lambs only had three main purposes. Not to be your pet animal, but they were to be eaten, sheared, or sacrificed. Now, that's not a picture you would naturally associate with a Messiah, right? Someone who's going to save you. For the Jews, all through the centuries, if you think about the Exodus and the Passover lamb and every Passover after that, the lamb was synonymous with sacrifice. Right? If you think about the morning sacrifices and the evening sacrifices in the temple, every day lambs were sacrificed, slain, slaughtered again and again and again. And so etched in their minds is the smell of blood, the image of sheep bleeding and taking their last breath before they were killed. Right, day after day, year after year, century after century. And so they're thinking, the first thing that is said about our Savior is that he is going to be sacrificed, slaughtered. Right, one of the reasons why the ministry of John the Baptist was so popular was because his message gave the people hope from their circumstances. Right? John's message was all about how the Messiah is coming. He is coming. He is on his way. And the Jews, they were tired of the centuries that had gone by. Right? They were tired of all the prophecies about the Messiah that never came to pass. They were tired of other nations ruling over them and occupying their land. They were tired, definitely, of the Romans. And so when John preaches this message of the coming of Christ, the people are ready and eager right, to buy in, to place their hopes and confidence in this someone who's going to make their life better, who's going to improve their circumstances, upgrade their life and position, and if it took doing this repenting thing and getting baptized, sure, I'll do it if it means that it's going gonna, it's gonna to make my life better. And yet, what they completely misunderstood was their greatest need, their greatest problem. They thought their greatest problem was the Romans. They thought their greatest problem was financial hardship and difficulty. 
They thought that their greatest problem was not having a king to rally behind. And yet they had completely missed the fact that their greatest problem was their sin. Because they did not understand their sinfulness, they did not recognize that they were under judgment. Because they did not understand their wickedness, they did not realize they needed a sacrifice. And yet that's why Jesus Christ came into this world. Not to bring us health, wealth, and prosperity, but to save us from our greatest need, our greatest problem, which is our sin. You see, no animal can take away our sin. Hebrews 10.4 states it clearly that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were only temporary solutions and could only point to and lead us to the one sacrifice that would take away sin once and for all. No animal could take away our sin and no ordinary human being can take away our sin as well. Right? A sinner cannot die for another sinner. And so what we need is a sinless savior. And this is the last point in your outline. Jesus is the sinless savior. He is the only possible solution in this entire universe who is able to save us from our sin. When John the Baptist says in verse 30, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, John is pointing out the fact that Jesus is eternal, existing before his human birth, and this makes Jesus unique. He is one of a kind. He is without equal, and that is because he is fully God and fully man. Jesus is the sinless savior, and he is the final sacrifice. He is human, which means he could bear the sins of humanity. He is sinless, which qualifies him to be the substitute of sinners. And he is immortal, which means he never has to be replaced. Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice, and there will never be the need for another. So what do you believe is your greatest need, your greatest problem in life? If John the Baptist is right, your greatest problem is not your finances, or your marriage, or your future, or your relationships. Your greatest problem is your sin. And once you recognize this reality that your greatest problem, that your greatest problem is that you are a wretched sinner in need of forgiveness and grace, then you can rejoice every single day of your life because your lamb, your sinless perfect savior has come to take away your sin. This is the message of the gospel, and this is the message that John dedicated his life to proclaim. If we were to read a couple chapters ahead, we would see that John's life ends abruptly and in a gruesome way. He spends the last portion of his life in prison and gets his head cut off by Herod. Right, the man described as the greatest among those born of women is executed because of his unwavering commitment to obey God. All he had to do was disobey Right, recant his sayings about you know, Herod taking uh, the wife of his brother. He probably could have spared his own life. And yet his death was an exclamation point to his life focused on Christ. So for us, you know, we might hear a message like this and think, well, that's admirable, that's noble, very inspiring of John the Baptist. And yet there's something that doesn't sit well for us. And it's the fact that this is not how we envision our future 
right? We don't like the thought of difficulty or suffering in any part of our lives. And the fact that being a Christian will actually increase the risk and possibilities of danger and vulnerability to our comforts and our reputation. But it is a good opportunity to reflect and evaluate your life and your purpose, who you are and who Christ is, what you're willing to live for and what you're willing to die for. Following Jesus may end badly. It may end negatively. But the good news of the gospel is not that if you follow him, everything's going to work out and all your problems will go away. The good news of the gospel is that you are finally free from the bondage of sin and death. You are made holy, blameless, and perfect. You are rescued from final judgment, and you get Christ forever. So let us, like John, spend our lives focused on Christ, the Lamb of God, that we might decrease and he might increase. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and give you thanks for your great love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion and running away from you, that you chose to move towards us and that you sent your son to die as a lamb on the cross in our place. We pray that you would help help us to recognize sin as our greatest need, our greatest problem every day, and that we would also rejoice every day knowing that our sin is taken away in Christ. Help us by your grace to live lives like John the Baptist that are focused on you, pointing to you, and help us to give thanks for the amazing gift that we have in Christ Jesus. And in his name we pray.